I pray that your word, Lord, would penetrate our hearts and our minds and our ears. And Lord, in that, do your work now. Strengthen, equip, save, transform, revolutionize each of us. And so infect us, Lord, that the entire world will be different as a result. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. I pray for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit to do your work. Have your way now, Lord, we pray. And, Lord, please redeem every second. Not a moment beyond, not a moment before, but do exactly what you want. Speak exactly what you want right now, we pray. As we commit this time to you, Lord, it's yours and so are we. Have at us now, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. Hey, now, let's put things sort of into context and we'll pick it up where we left off, by the way. The nation Israel has now been out of the land of Egypt for over a year, nearly two years now. They have gone to the area of Mount Sinai where God promised they would return to when God had actually put the call on Moses' life, or at least made it clear. And then from there, ultimately what's going to happen is, is Moses is going to go in, lead the people out. They're going to receive the law. God's going to place his tabernacle in the middle of the camp, set things up. And the book of Numbers is a book of great organization. As God starts to organize now the camp of Israel, he wants himself in the middle, and he's putting tribes on each side, and he's put then servants with specific roles. And it's important to note that God has a specific purpose for every person in the camp. And he wants every one of them to desire to be at the center where God is. He's made himself very clear, very findable. But unfortunately, with that, there is this opportunity for you often and for me to display where our heart really is, even if we are convinced it's somewhere else. And one of the ways we're going to find ourselves in that is in a place of need. A place where we're beyond ourselves. We don't have the strength to do it, the charm, the wit to do it. Although in most circumstances we've been able to smile or think or plan or strategize or cute or whatever our way out of it, he has this habit of putting us in a place where we're really at an end of ourselves. And it's in that place we find out whether we cry out to God or we cry at God. And really what we've found is that this old generation is all about whining. And unfortunately, it will be much like where we've come from. Every one of us, before we gave our life to Christ, we were naturally self-entitled, self-absorbed, self-serving, self-promoting, self-centered people. And we buy the book self. And you can't love anyone else until you love yourself. And it's look out for number one, which happens to be yourself. And it's me and myself and I. And it's all about us and everything else gets the leftovers. The orts that fall off the table. And then we give our life to Christ and God takes the liberty now of starting to remove Egypt from us even as he has removed us from Egypt. So it's hunger and we find out what our appetites are. It's the thirst and we crave for things. And after he starts showing us that he is the answer for every base need, he starts to expose that we have this nasty habit of really being convoluted about what really is a need and what really is a want. And all of a sudden we start whining at God because we need an iPhone and we need a Starbucks and we need a new pair of trainers and we need that bus to show up on time. 
God will gut it. And we're in trouble. Because one of the things God has this way of doing is showing us that what we think we need, we don't. And the only way God often does that is by showing us we could live without it which is really tough when you tell God you need it and he doesn't give it and you're angry at him because he didn't give you the new or whatever and the bus didn't show up and you're gutted again. And so here the people are now in a place where God has left them out. He's brought them to to the place where he wants them fruitful. That place beyond just, I'm no longer Egyptian, I'm no longer in bondage, I'm no longer recognized by being under the, ty- the tyranny of my own flesh and my own weakness and the world systems and all those things dictating who I am and what's important and all that. All of that seems to be starting to be shed away. And as it's getting shed away, listen, God doesn't just bring us to zero. The promised land is the place where we leave zero for the plus. Now, before I gave my life to Christ, I was a really big negative, probably like every one of us if we're honest. I did negative things. And I'm not talking about that like a uh, like negativity thing. But I'm like, I like made things worse. What I said made things worse. What I did made things worse. What I sang made things worse. What I planned made things worse. I hurt other people. I hurt myself. And the better I got at it, the more I hurt them and me too. And the heart of God. So I started out on this big negative. And then as I gave my life to Christ, God has pulled me out of that and put me at a place where now for a moment I look and I go, you know what, I'm no longer identified by those things. I'm no longer the violent, angry, confused, I hate people kind of person that I was. But that's, God's like, but that's only in route. That's not the end of the destination. That's just in route. And for many, that's enough. And we'd say, God, let's face it, this is the best place I've ever been. This is awesome. I'm no longer beating people up. I'm no longer, you know, getting that kind of crazy look on my face. And, you know, I'm I'm no longer who I used to be. And the eagles are released. And then he says, no, this is only in route. I want to make you a blessing. I want to make you so much more than just not awful. And for many of us, that'd be enough, to be honest. Because we were so bad at being, or so good at being bad, that zero was actually a miracle in itself. But he goes, no, 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 I have a place of abundance. And not abundance like you get more stuff. But you're so overflowing with me, the world gets touched. But I want to warn you, There are big battles to be fought to get there. But those battles are mine, not yours. Never forget that. Oh, there's also big fruit. And that's the easy part we could forget. When they come back from spying out the land, they bring big fruit. And understand, with those big battles come big fruit. We don't like to think that because all we can think about is, oh, it's big battles, I'm going to die. And God's like, no, 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 stop it. Didn't I promise you this would be the place of abundance? Didn't I promise you this would be the place of abundance? Not abundant stuff, abundant life. Big difference. We had, some of us had abundant stuff before, and there was no life involved in it at all. It was abundantly bummer. It was abundantly bad. 
Jesus, if you really think that all you want on this other side is for me to give you a bigger car, bigger house, and more stuff, you're not, pro- you're not entering into the land I'm promising you at all. Because the land I'm, I want you entering into is a land of abundant fruit. And fruitfulness is everything. But we spy it out and we look and we go, yeah, it's just like God said it was. It's abundantly awesome. But there are these giants in the land. How are we going to fight them? God's like, you've already failed. I told you I would take care of that. And God has this habit, by the way, of bringing the enemy right before you so that you were more than happy for God to take him down and then taking him down in front of you so you give God the credit, you're happy that he did it, and you can actually rest. Oh, but once we start seeing the enemy approaching, we flip out. And so here we are like chihuahuas on Red Bull, spinning around in circles, barking like crazy, running around in ways that we couldn't even catch ourselves. And we're like, you know what? God just hates us. He brought us out to kill us. As if what God was doing in the last couple of years was just dragging you around to wait for that last moment where he could just let you die slowly and take sick glee in it. So the people start raising up. Heck no, we won't go. God says, well, if you don't want to go, you don't have to. God is a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't say, behold, I stand at the door, and if you don't let me in, I'll kick it down. See, God's a good gentleman, and he wants in, and he'll knock. But the rest is you. And if you want to not go into that place of fruitfulness, that place of abundance, that place of overflow, you don't have to go. You could spend the rest of your life wandering around in the wilderness and then die. Have a nice day. Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Could you imagine if that was the end of the message? We're like, wow, I don't know what to do with that. Wow, I think I'm going to go and sulk. But the option's yours. That's the point here. The option is yours. But for that to happen, the old generation has to die. They say, oh, you don't care about our kids. You're just letting our kids die. And God says, I'll show you how much I love our, your kids. I'll let you all die, and I'll bring them in. Is that good enough? Now, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that would think, hmm, I don't know if I like that deal. But that's what's going to happen. So for the next 38 years, they're on a very much a 38-year death march. What an uplifting book. It is, if we look at the person we used to be, the attitudes, the standards, the mindsets, the priorities as that old generation that has to die. And my attitude is, God, could you just do it in a day and not in, in 40 years? God's like, actually, no. It's going to be a walk. It's going to be a wander. But here's the good news. I'm going to get the new one in. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. I understand why Jesus says we must be born again. Because the old man's going to die in the wilderness. Well, he was crucified at the cross if you've accepted Christ. It's just the residue that has to get off of us in the wilderness. Oh, but we're, if you want, and I want you to come with me, and I want to go, I want to go to the promised land and live in that promised land, that place of abundant fruitfulness, that place of overflow. You know what the crazy part is? Even if you go in there, you could still run back out into the wilderness. But that would be kind of dumb. Wouldn't you agree? So here we are now. And with that, 
God is starting to raise up the things that need to die in that old generation that don't properly reconcile to the promised land. These things don't belong there. And one of them is the Korah. The person that is always about gathering a posse, gathering a crowd, gathering a gang to fight against any form of authority. Who do you think you are? Who died and made you boss? And... (coughs) And wants to go and gather all of that and gathers all of the group, basically then raises up all these people to say, you're awesome and that guy's not. Listen, listen. There is no part of the unsaved, unregenerate human being that in any way happily submits to to the governing authorities. So when we hear words like submit, ladies, it's not just you. There's no part of any of us that goes yippee skippy submission. That's what I was hoping for. More than likely, what's going to happen is your boss is going to be an idiot. Now, I'm not trying to be mean. And if your boss is here in the church with you, you can nod really. You can just go like this. No, not mine. They're going to know a little bit less. They're going to be a little less ambitious. They're going to have a little less vision. They're going to be whatever. Because the issue is not whether they're more equipped. The issue is rather, if God put them there, God put them there. And one of the things is it will flesh out whether or not you really are willing to submit or not. Now, here's the benefit We live in a crazy place where you don't have to work where you work. You don't have to marry somebody. Nobody's holding a gun and nobody's picking for you. So look at if you're going to be, if God says you need to submit under these particular contexts, here's the good news. There isn't a context in Scripture other than being a child where you really don't have a choice in the matter. I mean, we should be the ones more blessed than anyone because we could actually choose. I mean, imagine you're going to go apply for a job one of the things is can i meet the boss can i really submit to this guy or not now as that is the case there's a group that's raised up this guy that was led by the way if you remember by a levite some of you might be remembering this situation and i'm maybe i'll ask a couple questions and so don't panic but just you have the opportunity to kind of be smart for a second this guy korah he was the son of ishar from kohath what relationship was he to moses cousin excellent he was his cousin Now, that means that both of them, their dads, were brothers. Whose dad was older, according to this? Moses' dad or this guy's dad? Moses' dad. Good. All right. Moses' dad was the older one, the son of Levi. And with that, they gathered together a group of guys that were Reubenites. Now, why would the Reubenites have the opportunity to actually talk with these guys? Because they were on the same side of the tabernacle. And by convenience, these guys are talking, rallying up. And with that, he gathers up. Does anyone remember how many people he he gathers up that were leaders, men of renown? 250. Excellent. 250 people. So 250 famous leaders are there, gathered up with this guy. Who do you think you are? And then it tells us by the time there's the showdown, there is actually the entire congregation on Korah's side. And the only people that seem to be left on Moses and Aaron's side are the 70 elders. So there are these guys. And by the way, figure out why. Those are the other guys in leadership. So it's the leadership against the rest of the world is basically what it must feel like. And the showdown is simple. Take censers. Censers, if you remember, are those things which hold the incense for the sense of prayer. So there's 250 uh, incense censers held by these guys under Korah. Let me ask you, what were they made of? Bronze. Excellent. They were made of bronze. What were they supposed to be made of? 
gold. Oh, nice. No, yeah, actually. And what does bronze seem to typify in Scripture? Judgment, sin and judgment versus gold, which typifies faith. And so these guys are there with them praying. And, of course, as that happens, and Moses says in the simplest sense, okay, now look it. If these guys die like most people die, like the average guy dies, then you'll know that I'm just sort of a lark and this whole thing's goofy. But if something brand new happens, like the ground opens up and just swallows them completely, well, then you know that God actually called me like he said he did. At that point, there would be a uh uh-oh in my spirit. How about yours? And the ground opens up, swallows these leaders. Except maybe this guy on, we're still in question about that was in the first verse. And then these guys with the 250 sensors, man, it is a lightning storm like you've never seen before. That's like specific targeted lightning. Bam, 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 bam. And that would be fun to watch and scary to watch at the same time, wouldn't it? Especially if you were part of the congregation. And they're like, oh, and they start running. The ground's going to swallow us too. But where do you run when the ground's swallowing you? The more you run, it's just ground, right? I would try to jump and flap my arms or something, right? Grab a hot air balloon, something. Oh, no. The ground is swallowing them. And at the end of that, God has responded again. And remember, it ended with Moses saying, let's take those 250 censers, let's pound them. What were they made of again? Bronze. And let's pound them, and we're going to put them on, then we're going to cover that place where you go to make a sacrifice. So, and let me remind you, they were the mirrors of the day, pounded bronze. So you could see yourself as you're going to go make that sacrifice. And be careful, because the sacrifice of incense is only to be done by the priest that I ordain, God speaking. And you would have thought that would have been definitive. Wouldn't that have been definitive enough for you? You got, okay, let's see. Moses is like, if God really wants to do this, let the ground, something you've never seen before, like the ground opening up and going, oh, links a lot, and off they go. But that's where we pick it up now. And this somehow makes my head spin. Follow it with me now, if you would, please. We pick it up in verse 41. The next day. So we had, all, we had that time that night to freak out, tell our children the stories. Can you, can you believe we made it out alive? All that congregation of the children of Israel murmured. Would you say, loon? Come on now, say it with me. Loon. That's the word in the Hebrew here. It literally means to stay or be obstinate. So get the idea. This isn't that murmuring that's like a whispering campaign. That's kind of that, <laughs> that's kind of the attitude we have here. And they did this against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Really? Moses had this amazing ability to cause the ground to swallow people. If Moses had the ability to open up the ground and have people swallowed up, would you go toe-to-toe with them and start, getting, start dissing them at a moment like this? Do you have, like, floaty shoes on? A hoverboard? What is this? But that means at night, you know what this tells me? Apparently, all of the complainers were not swallowed up the day before. Just the leaders. And now we have the residue. So what happened when the congregation, and notice it's the congregation, had gathered against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. So apparently all the influential, divisive people weren't destroyed yesterday. 
Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. By the way, this isn't the first time God has said this. He said it back in verse 22. And we read that they, that's Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces. It's the third time now Moses has fallen on his face in this chapter alone. Verse 4, when the people accused him of exalting himself. Verse 22, then when God said he would consume them in an instant. And then here, when God said he would consume them in an instant. Now what if the others had become leaders instead? And Moses backed down and said, you're right, you guys take it. Would any of them have stood in the gap here when God said, let me consume the congregation? You know what? Think about how God, hear me on this, how God risks his own reputation. There are times where God has this opportunity that if nobody were to stand in the gap, if nobody were to step up, God's name would be, would be horribly maligned. And as a result of that, this is one of those moments. See, God knows when there is somebody willing to stand in the gap between the living and the dead, between the complainer, the rebellious, and the tenderhearted. So understand, when God does this, listen, 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 he is setting you up to shine. Those moments when you think that God has done something that makes so little sense that every person in the world is going to think God's bad are the very moments God allows you to step up and shine for Him. And this is one of them. Now, what God says is simple. Does God have the power to wipe out everyone? Yes. Does He have the desire to wipe out everyone? No and yes. Let's be honest. Yes, but no. He doesn't want them to die. He doesn't want them to perish. But He does want this to stop. So he says, step out of the way, and I'll take care of it. Now, get the attitude here. If you step out of the way, I'll pour forth my wrath. If you step out of the way, I'll pour forth my wrath. Does that mean we get to be wrath stoppers? Absolutely. See, understand, it isn't because it's like, oh my goodness, it's all on your shoulders. God is actually, throughout the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, those places where God is pouring forth his wrath, he goes, I'm searching for just one person that says, please, God, don't kill the pervert. Please, God, don't kill the, the molester. Please, God, don't kill the villain and the criminal. Please, God, don't kill that person, but rather transform them. Kill the old guy and raise them up to new. He's looking for that. Please, God, don't kill that guy that is selling drugs to nine-year-old school children. Kill him, but don't kill him. Kill the old man so a new man can rise up. Do that at the cross. The difference is their eternity. In both cases, the old guy can die. In one of the cases, the eternity is much better. Don't you agree? And we're supposed to be thinking from the perspective of eternity. So God says, ah, oh, step out of the way. Let me wipe him out. And again, Moses falls on his face before God and he says, Oh God, look at this. Are you going to really kill everyone for a guy? Which, by the way, it seems as if God has given Moses the wisdom to recognize that this really was inspired by a single fella. So it says, Moses, verse 46. Take the censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense in it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Oh my goodness. 
the plague. Not a plague, the plague. You kind of get the idea that they had a view that some kind of specific plague was the plague. Now, let's face it. We have one here. We're very thankful it doesn't happen anymore. But when we think in England, the plague, what do we think of? Isn't it bubonic? Anyways, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the black plague. But think about this. In those days, what was the plague? It's actually quite enlightening. The plague, for what it's worth, is listed 21 different times in the book just prior, the book of Leviticus. And every time the term the plague is listed, it speaks of leprosy. When he says in Leviticus 13.49, and if the plague is greenish or reddish in the garment, well, then it's actually, it is the plague of leprosy. In 14.34, it says then, and I will put a leprous plague on the house and the land in your positions if you are willing to walk away from me and chase after other gods. Leviticus 14.44, the priest shall come and take a look and indeed if the plague is spread in the house, it is an act of leprosy. Interesting as it is that there is leprosy, and I really do believe it is the case because think about what leprosy is. Leprosy is being numbed to death. I mean, in between us, in our bodies, are these little spaces in our nerves that fire from one side to the other when you stub something or burn something, whatever, and it says, ah! And that's the part that gets to the hand or to the head that says, pull that hand back because you're pouring hot water on it, or watch out, you're kicking this, or something stabbing you, or that thing's stinging you and you should move away from it. Well, what if those things don't communicate? If those things are like, you know what, I really don't want that. The good news is you don't feel pain. The bad news is you don't feel pain. This pain's healthy under those circumstances. But if you live in constant pain, you just want it to stop. Unless it's telling you something. So what happens is, as those nerves start to run, by the way, back to, by the way, it's a bacteria traditionally. It's a rod-shaped acid-fast bacteria, for what it's worth, or bacterium leprae, that actually gets into the sinus uh, cavities, the wet and mucous membranes, and then starts to fill, comes copper color pots. It looks a lot like acne, but only like acne that's copper color. No matter what skin tone you are, it gets pretty much the same color. And that is a death sentence, because you know that even to this day, we don't have a way to reverse it, only a way to halt it to this day. And then what happens? Your extremities, the things on the farthest sides of it, stop regenerating. Those are the things that are farthest from your heart, so they're the things you feel the least first. Your skin to regenerate needs those nerves because it starts saying there's old skin, let's get rid of it, let's regenerate new. So that doesn't start to happen. And that's why you get that flaky white look on your face and on your arms and on your because your skin isn't regenerating anymore. And then you can't feel anything. See, the idea of it is maybe there's some pain and you don't want to feel that pain. And so what happens is I just want to numb myself. And you know, that could be other things we start with in our own life in a spiritual sense or in a common practical sense. You know what it is? It's going out for a beer with the guys afterwards because things have been a little rough today. It's, you know what, I'm going to start by watching this stuff. And I know it's a little questionable and it starts to turn into something a little less clothed. And it starts to turn a little because, you know, that girl broke my heart. So I have a right to kind of start looking at these other things. And then what happens is this little thing that seems like it's just a little bit of a sedative becomes a snare. And it tells us, be careful, lest your heart, well, it talks about your hearts being deadened by the deceitfulness of sin. And because the unrighteousness or sin abounds, the love of many will wax cold. That's what happens. 
And you get the idea here that if under the circumstances, when God starts placing people in our lives and he wants to put us in a specific position and we fight that position and we fight that position, maybe in the beginning it's, I want to fight stopping doing this, but soon it becomes, I want to fight start doing this. Because God says, hey, now that I'm pulling that stuff out of your life, I have something really awesome for you over here. And you're like, isn't it just enough that I'm not doing that anymore? And God says, no. I didn't pull you out of the pit so you could just not be in the pit anymore. I want to use you to change the world. And you're like, I don't want to be a world changer. I just want to have my own world change. He goes, but if your world's changed, you're going to be infectious to start changing others. And he goes, I want to start moving you to this direction. You're like, no. And you numb yourself. And you start fighting the pain and the uncomfortableness, the restlessness, and that discomfort that God puts in our hearts that says, wait a minute. And you know what happens? For some of you, it'll be walking by the homeless and your heart starts to break. For some. For some, to be honest, it'll be walking by the people caught in sex trafficking or even the people who have volunteered in it, but they're still caught in it. For some, it'll be the drug addict. For some, it'll just be the people who are on the fringe who aren't really getting it. But in each of the cases, there'll be someone that God will start to prick your heart from, but then what will happen is you'll start to say something like, well, they just want your money. They're just going to sound a crack anyways, and they're too stoned to actually listen to me anyways. Why even talk to them? And you know what you're doing? You're starting to sever that place in between your will and the Spirit of God, that synapsis that actually kicks in and says, hey, let's do something about this just the same way. It's interesting because there's once in Scripture, by the way, that there was a king. Remember, it says only from the tribe of Levi, there's only a specific group of people that I ordain, God speaking, that can light that incense. And there was one king who was named, by the way, was Uzziah, who came in, or Abzariah, and he came into the temple and he did it anyways. And the priest said, you shouldn't be here. And he says, I'm going to do it anyways. I'm the king. I can do what I want. Do you remember what happened to him? He became a leper. Interesting, before this point, who has fought Moses' leadership? Back in chapter 12. It was Moses' sister and brother. And when that happened, what happened to his sister? She became leprous. Now listen, could it be that when the Lord puts you in a place that will be under and over, because we'll see that here in a moment, when he does that, and we start to kick at him and we fight at him, we become spiritual lepers in the same process? And I want to warn you, it is contagious. Here's the good news. My God can raise the dead. He can reverse anything. But we have to call out to him for that. Let's be honest. And that's what we're dealing with here. So imagine, if you will, Moses is looking out, and all of a sudden, everyone's like turning white around you, flaking off, and and they're starting to look like zombies, and they're just dying in front of him, which normally takes between 10 to 20 years. Now it's happening quite quickly in front of him. And so he says, Aaron, you need to get busy. And look at what he uses. Isn't it interesting he uses a censer? the very thing that was used improperly that fried those 250 guys, now we see what a censor should look like. And you know what that is? And the prayer of a priest is a prayer for mercy. And I want to warn you, according to the book of Revelation, he has made you a priest. He has called you. Not the high priest, that's Jesus. He's called you now into service. And it starts with your censor. What's your center full of? Is it the incense of surrender like God calls us to so that when our hearts are broken and we're willing to let them break for whatever it is that we're willing to say and surrender, all right, God, use me then. Or is it more the one of vindication and justice and judgment? That sounds like the 250 made out of bronze, doesn't it? 
interesting. So Aaron, verse 47, took it as Moses commanded, and he ran in the midst of the assembly. Already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense and made atonement for the people. Notice in verse 48 that he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. That's where we put ourselves, is right in between. Notice he didn't throw himself in the middle of the dead. He threw himself in between the two. There's too often the church wants to throw themselves right in the middle of the dead, but really doesn't. Then what happens is there's no place to go. Versus that place where we actually bring the holiness of God. I say it this way we cross over, but we bring the cross over when we do. So when you're there, you're not there just to become somebody's buddy, but you're there to bring them out. There's got to be that place where behind you, on one side of you is the living, and on the other side is the dead. So they know that you're going to be the one as the bridge in between to get the dead to the living. Does that make sense? But what will happen is we'll go and we'll hang out with a bunch of unbelievers. We'll be nice to them, but we're not even even attached anymore to the other side. That's not a bridge. That's a relocation. That's building a house on the wrong side of the river. But the Lord wants us to be bridges. And that's where he did. He went in between the two. And he was making incense. And notice as a result of that, the plague stopped. Verse 49 says, Now, those who died in the plague were 14,700. That's a lot of people. It's about the amount of people that are riding the trains in central London at any given moment. Imagine if every person that was on a train in the, the TFL died from leprosy at one time. Which one of you wants to get on the train at the next stop? And that's beside those who died in the Quirrell incident, which was the two. So it's 14,700 from this, 250 for the sensor users, plus the Quirrell, the Dath, and Abiram, their families. And then this. Now, that's roughly 15,000 people. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. And can I say this? Listen, I think there's something great to learn here from our last verse as we move into the next chapter. And we will. Don't stop interceding until the plague is stopped. Don't stop. Don't just stop going, well, things have gotten a little bit better. That's good enough. Really? Could you imagine? It's like, well, it looks like not everybody has leprosy. That's good enough. I'm going back. No, no, not at all. You stand between the dead and the living until this thing stops. Which, by the way, may mean you may spend the rest of your life right there. And that's okay. Because it's effective. But if you do see God stop it, then the next thing is get back to the tabernacle where you belong. Now with that, then we get to chapter 17. Now please hear me. God knows the attitude. Though there are at this point roughly 15,000 people wiped out from this, I want to remind you, the entire congregation stood against Moses and Aaron. Are you with me on that? And the entire congregation, I guarantee, was not 15,000 people. It's roughly 2 million people. So God still has some work to do in the rest. Now, chances are what's happening here is there's a whole lot of people where the jury's out, and they just kind of follow the momentum, wherever that is. If you remember the story in the book of Acts when um, Paul is, they try to catch Paul and they try to put him into the uh, theater there in Ephesus, although they wind up grabbing his traveling fans instead. And they, and they throw in this guy just in Alexander. They throw him then in before the people. And for two hours the people are shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Because they're charging him with blaspheming their goddess. And it said that the majority of the people there didn't even know why they were there. 
Can I just say, people can be, even the most brilliant people can be smart. The most brilliant people in the world, you put them in a crowd, they become idiots. Crowds are just dumb. Now, that's the danger. We just get swept up in the moment. And then we do things that we would never do on our own. Chapter 17, verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to the father's houses. Twelve rods, write each man's name on his rod, and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Now understand what God is doing here, because this is a very short chapter, and you need to tag it on to this, because it's perfect and it's fitting. God could wait for the next rebellion and punitively respond. And then he could punitively respond, and God would be known as the ultimate party pooper. And he could always quiet a rebellion with this punitive response. But God actually tends to be preemptive here as well. Let me prove it before the next rebellion starts. Let me prove it once and for all. And this is how it starts. God says, go and get a rod from each of the households. Now, I want you to recognize one of those rods is a little different from the rest. I mean, one of those rods, well, let me, let me say this. One of those rods, Exodus 7:17, when it struck the waters, it turned to blood. In 8:5, when it struck the streams of Exodus, it turned into frogs, or frogs came from it. When it struck the dust in 8:16, it became lice. When it was moved towards heaven in 9:23, thunder and hail came. In 10:13, when it was waved over the land, the east wind brought locusts. In 14:16, when it was brought over the sea, it divided. In 17:5 and 6, when it struck the rock, water came out. In 17.9, when it was raised against Amalek, Israel got, a, got victory. And I want you to think about this for a second, because England's one of those places that has borrowed from that. What is a rod on the hand of a boy who can do magic? We call it a wand. What is a wand? Where did that come from? Who decided, let's get something that looks like a little fairy thing and go ding, ding, and everything's going to change. Where do you think that came from? It came from the reality of a stick back in Exodus. Do you ever think about that? But let me take it farther than that. And I almost brought one, but then if I had brought it, I could be arrested. Because um, I have one from, that comes from Africa. And in Africa, I want you to realize they have these things that are called lion hitters, lion killers or skull crackers. And they're about this big, and they have this bulbous thing on the end of it with a little point on it. And that's what they use. And by the way, in certain places, uh, like in northern Kenya and that kind of thing, they, uh, the, these, the Maasai, for instance, you become a man by killing a lion. And if you don't kill the lion, you definitely don't become a man. You become dinner. Anyways, so I'd like you to think about this for a second. Follow me on this, if you will, okay? David, come here for a second. Let's say that there's a man and he's a shepherd and he has this stick. Go ahead and just, have a, just kind of lean against this. I forgot your, yeah, just kind of have to lean all right, follow me on this. There's a, a man has a stick. And this stick, by the way, because he's a shepherd, is used for two things. It has that crook on it we're familiar with because it's the idea of to pull sheep back. But that's the least used of the things. The most used thing is the actual other end of it because it's just used to whack things to get it where it needs to be. But it isn't most of the time, to be honest, it's not used to whack sheep. What's it used to whack? Wolves. It's used to whack things to keep, it, uh, keep them safe. This sounds really sharp for a reason. There's a point to it. Literally. <laughs> Get it? All right. 
And so what happens is this thing, after a while, becomes the symbol of that man's experience and authority. Does that make sense? It's just a stick in the sight of anyone else. But that specific stick means an awful lot to that man. Now understand, when a father bequeaths his authority to his son, he doesn't go go and find a stick. Traditionally, he gives him his own. The reason's important. Because I want you to know, with this stick, there's authority. With this stick is honor. With this stick is safety to those sheep. Fear to those wolves. And that staff gets handed down. Does that make sense? So I want you to recognize, when that staff is given to a son, for instance, that son now knows what dad did, I better do. And I know this is effective because dad used it right. Does that make sense? Now, listen to this. If we were shepherds and he was an under-shepherd, I'm leading this thing as a dad for a moment. This is one of my boys for a moment. And we're going to go to a place that is thin and scary. What part of this staff would he have to grab if we're going to go in a single file line? The front or the back of it? The back. Because the front's the part that I put my hand on. That's the part that fits mine. So we're in a place of fear and, and insecurity. He grabs the tail of that stick. Does that make sense? Okay, now follow me on this. What would happen if he grabbed the front of it? Well, if he grabbed the top of it, he would be saying, Dad, I now no longer accept your authority. I assume authority over you. Got that? It's interesting because there was a guy who learned how to be a shepherd. And the guy that learned how to be a shepherd, God says, let me show you something kind of cool. Throw down that stick of yours. And when he threw down that stick, what happened? It became a snake. But then remember how he was to take it? By the tail. Just like an under-shepherd would. See, an under-shepherd knows when you take it by the tail, and they call that the tail of the staff. When you take it by the tail of the staff, you were assuming responsibility under the authority of another shepherd. Does that make sense? What would happen if he tried to grab it by the head? He would have got bit by the serpent. Does that sound familiar? So it's interesting. Now, if I were a king, would I have a stick like this? Sort of. But if I were a king, what would I make my stick out of? Gold. And what would we call it? A scepter. It's the same idea, isn't it? He leads his people. And as he leads his people, he can extend his authority or retract his authority. Does that make sense? Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Dave. Now consider this. And we know this, for instance, in the story of Esther. And the story of Esther, now understand, any time a king is in his, in his, on his throne, this staff speaks of his authority. Does that make sense? As it speaks of his authority, he either welcomes any person that comes in or doesn't welcome them. It's not such a good thing for those he doesn't. And it's done so easily with all of his guard in there that he doesn't even have to speak. If somebody were to come in and he extended an invitation for fellowship, he would simply offer the top of his staff. Why the top of his staff? That's his authority. Does that make sense? For which then they would bow before it, he would touch their head, or they would kiss it, or they would kiss his foot. It all depends on the culture. But them being underneath that as he touches them shows them that he has his authority over them. Does that make sense? If they are somehow a threat, he pulls back that staff. And as he pulls back that staff, 
Well, then it's a guard's turn to have some fun with the guy who runs in. Does that make sense? If he offers that staff before them, well, then it's called a scepter of rightness. Because he's declaring, you're right with me. You're right with me. Does that make sense? Now, let me ask you, what book of the Bible does that particular situation revolve around? The book of Esther. Twice, remember how she has to approach him? He goes, if he doesn't extend his scepter, I'm in deep water. This is a bad idea. Does that make sense? But if he pull, all he had to do was pull it back and I'm uh, toast. But if he offers that scepter of righteousness, well, then at that point, then I know that I could grant my petition because what he says is I, she's still saying I'm under your authority but as I'm under your authority you grant me the opportunity to approach does that make sense well it gets even more beautiful when you get to Psalm 45 because in Psalm 45 it says your scepter O God is a scepter of righteousness perpetually do you realize what that means it means God on his throne is always like this with you as long as you're willing to be underneath this you can approach any time you want. You're my child. I adopted you. I want you. Do you get it? Isn't that beautiful? Now follow me as we wrap this around. God says, now I want you to go and take your rod, Aaron. And go ahead and let those guys do theirs too if they want to. Let's do that. Let's get one from each of them. They'll write your names on them. Now, you all have your, so there's your authority. And I want you to take those babies. And I want you to take them. And, and then Moses, you're going to take all of those 12 and you're going to bring them to the place that he calls the place of testimony or evidence. And I want you to take them and I want you to lay them before the ark and then come back the next day. I'll take care of the rest. So, that's what Moses does. Take a look at it with me. Now, it says then, verse 4, And you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony or before the evidence where I where I will meet with you. It's important to recognize that for what's about to happen requires God to interface. He doesn't just say, I'll let something happen naturally. It's going to evolve into something cool. Don't worry. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. Notice, by the way, God's actually defending Moses and not just himself here. Hey, if you spend your time, if you start in the road of defending yourself, you'll spend the rest of your life doing it. It's God's job to do that. So the rods are placed before the ark, but there is something that has to happen to separate one from the rest. Verse 6, and we'll get to that as we get to the close of this. Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of the leaders then gave a rod apiece. For each leader, according to the father's house, is twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among the rods. Moses placed the rods before the Lord at the ark of the, of the tabernacle of witness. I'm sorry. It came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. Remember, they all wrote their names on them, so it isn't like you could say which yours was a different one. And behold, the rod of Aaron and the house of Levi had sprouted and poured forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. This dead stick, though it spoke of authority, the clearest proof was that this dead stick was coming to life. It's interesting because in Romans 1.4, it tells us that Jesus himself was declared to be, hear me, the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, 
by the resurrection from the dead. What separates Jesus? He hung on a stick, and it was a stick of the Father's authority. And yet, when he hung on that stick in submission to the Father, the resurrection proved that he is the rightful high priest. What I love about this is it didn't just come to life. It bore forth fruit. And the fruit was nuts. It was nuts. Understand here that the clearest proof of any authority God gives any of us is going to be the fruit that comes from resurrection. And the good news is, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you are not just made a little nicer. The old has died. The new has resurrected. You are a brand new creation. That's why we call ourselves born again, because Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will never inherit the kingdom of God. You don't even see it. You've got to be born again. You've got to be a new person. You can't be the old person redecorated, remodeled, relocated. You need to be <coughs> excuse me, a brand new creation altogether. And that's what I'm calling for. How does that happen? The same way. Two things that are willing parties gather together. Two things can join, and there is a baby that comes from that. Now it's the love of God, the gift of Jesus, and your will surrendering together, and united bear forth the fruit of a resurrection. Paul would say, I don't mind going through all these sufferings in Philippians 3.10 that I may know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It tells us in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, born us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not just of the dead or of the, on the dead, it's but Jesus from the dead. That was what disturbed the religious leaders in Acts 4. When it says that they were distraught or disturbed that they taught and in, the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So let me ask you, have you been brought out from the dead? Spiritually, we're born spiritually stillborn. But God makes alive. And he proved it in the one way that no other person could. He went to the cross and he died there for our sins, was buried. And on the third day, just as Scripture promised, rose from the dead to show us there is life beyond that death. And he offers us that life, the resurrected life, a life no longer under the dominion of Egypt, a life no longer under the hand of the enemy, no longer in the land of the slavery, but rather now a land no longer to wander in the wilderness, but rather the ultimate goal is a place of abject and utter fruitfulness and abundance at the overflow of our relationship with him. So this is what happens here. It was the fruit. It's interesting. When Jesus tells us the story of a sower goes to sow some seed and it goes into fall, poor soil types, that's Matthew 13. That though in three of the cases, the seed lands and it germinates, but what's the biggest difference between the one that he speaks of in a positive light? It bears forth fruit. It's interesting because even it tells us about those weeds that he tells us are the cares and the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and wealth choke the life and therefore it bears forth no fruit or it strangles the fruit out from it. It's interesting. Jesus tells us that though we cannot be judges, we can be fruit inspectors. He tells us that a good tree doesn't bear forth bad fruit, and a bad tree doesn't bear forth good fruit. That's the way it works. 
Now, please understand, this is what we read in Galatians. God's not mocked. What you reap, you sow. And if you're going to plant cherry pits, assumedly you're not going to be growing peaches. That would be weird. And God set that up, by the way, all the way back, so you know, in the first chapter of Genesis. You're aware of that, right? When it says, and everything bore forth fruit of its own kind. Do you wonder why God said that so many times? Everything bore forth fruit. What God doesn't say is everything bore forth fruit that grew gills and legs and came out of the water and started to whatever. I think God's really trying to tell us something. He says, you know what? It bore forth fruit of its own kind. A dog gave birth to a dog. Strange as that is. Should have saw it coming. And bad trees do not bear forth good fruit. Shouldn't, should see that coming too. But a good tree doesn't bear forth bad fruit either. And then Jesus says in John 15, he says, you know what? I'm really divine. You're just branches. And you can't bear forth fruit on your own. No matter how much you want to, you can't. You take a woman and you put her on an island by herself and she's the only one there. No matter how bad she wants a baby, she's not going to get it. It isn't like think baby thoughts. It's not going to work. She could drink all the formula she wants. She can watch all of the Barney and Teletubbies she wants. And the end of all, the baby's going to come without, and I'm not trying to be gross, I'm just trying to be honest, without union. And understand, God tells us that in regards to us and him, in no weird, perverted way. But listen, if we want to be for spiritual fruit, there needs to be union. And the greater the union, the greater opportunity for that fruit to be born. And Jesus says, if you just cling to me, it's going to happen on its own. That's the product. Here's the good news. You are not responsible for the fruit. You are responsible for the location. And if you could cling to God, well, then the rest happens on its own. In Psalm 92, 13, it says, He was planted in the house of the Lord, will flourish in the courts of our God. And then it says, you know what? It'll bear forth fruit in its due time. It doesn't say it always bears forth fruit. It says bears forth fruit in its due time. And maybe some of you are feeling kind of fruitless. Here's the good news and the bad news. Jesus also told us in John 15 that the Father's the vine dresser. And understand, a vine dresser isn't just the guy that cuts and he knows how to cut something. You could give that to a three-year-old. Just tell him not to run with those scissors. On the other side of it, a vine dresser knows his vines. When, where we lived in California, it was just outside of some vineyards. And I tell you, those guys are really a big deal about it. I mean, they can tell you the soil and what's in it. They can tell you about things that grow within three miles in the distance of it. Lilacs over here and it seasons this. I mean, it's like it's an own, its own art form. Understand, a vine dresser is somebody who really doesn't just know how to, to cut. He knows his vines. And he knows them well enough to know this one sits in the sun and this one already tends to get things sweet. This one, on the other hand, needs a whole lot more help. And he says, that's my dad. And he knows how to cut. And he cuts that which is alive but unfruitful so that the other would bear forth more fruit. Now, please hear me. Maybe that's the season you're in. And here's the warning. He goes, on the other hand, if it doesn't bear forth any fruit, it's cut off and thrown into the fire. So can I warn you, you're going to get cut either way. But the problem is, when the Father is at work, what he does cut hurts because it is living. It's just not fruitful. And there are areas of our life that we feel like it's good and it's okay because, I mean, after all, it's not really bad. It's just not good. But, you know, he even cuts things that are mildly fruitful because I've learned this from the people who work there. Because if you, if you know what you're doing, you cut the things that, well, they will produce a little bit of fruit, but if you cut them right, it'll cause the 
ones that are supposed to bear forth fruit to be sweeter. And the Lord knows what he's doing. And he says, you know what you just need to do? Cling to me. Cling to me. Cling to me even when I'm cutting you. Cling to me. Even when I'm cutting off what you want to hold on to, cling to me. Because I know what I'm doing. And he knows the vines better than the vines know the vines. And he says, by this my Father was glorified, that you would bear much fruit, and then my favorite phrase on that, and that your fruit would remain. Hey, look at If you try to do something in the flesh, you can kick up a lot of dust. If you just don't move mountains. And I know this because we've gone to places and we've gone to other countries, like with the band, for instance, and those times where you just try to do something that's sort of a big huzzah, and what happens is all this motion happens, but there really seems to be no lasting fruit. But I want fruit that remains. I don't want a year from now all of you to be gone because somehow in it it was cool for the moment, but then it lost its luster because this isn't about me or about Shoreline. This is about Jesus. It'll always be about Jesus, and he doesn't change. Let's close this up. This is how it ends. So he says then, the Lord spoke to Moses. And actually, I should say this. Moses brought out the rods, verse 9, before the, from before the Lord to all the children of Israel. That means that whole congregation, right? That whole congregation that was just yesterday, or actually two days ago, complaining against them, and then yesterday complaining against them again. He brought it before all of them, and they looked. Each man took his rod. Which one of you wants to take the rod now? Except for... Aaron, hey, you know what you have? Eleven sticks. Hey, dude, take your stick. Thanks, man. And then there's Aaron. And his is totally nuts. And the Lord said to Moses, now bring Aaron's rod from before the testimony to be, actually to the testimony, before the testimony, to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Listen to how funny this ends. Keep it there as a sign. Put it there next to the ark. Which, by the way, if you actually read in the book of, of Hebrews, It'll tell us that there are several things that are, this is Hebrews 9, 4. In that tabernacle, ultimately, there'll be the golden censer, which is put there before the, uh, before the ark. And in that ark, a golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Those are the things which you're going to find in that tabernacle. They're going to wind up in the ark of the covenant. Here it says, listen, put that thing before them so they could take a look at it. Listen, so they could stop complaining so that I don't kill them. Listen to that again. Listen. Put it before there so people could see it or people would know it so that they can stop complaining so I don't kill him. Did you get that? So what does it take for God not to kill you under those circumstances? Here you can say it. Say it. That was, you had it. Stop complaining. Did you get that? Here's the funny part. No, it says that they would put away their complaints away from me lest they die. Verse 11. Thus did Moses just as the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Then the children of Israel spoke to Moses and said, surely we die. Do you get it? It's almost funny, isn't it? Because, like, look at all you have to do is stop complaining and you won't have to die. And they're like, oh, we're going to die, which tells me that they're saying, I am not going to stop complaining. And there's a part of us like that, too. And if God's like, do you mind if I kill that part in you? Any of you with me to say, be my guest, be my guest, be my guest. Everyone's complaining, you know, that kind of Surely we die, we perish, we perish, we all perish. We're all going to die. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we utterly die? You'd say, no, stop complaining. Did you get it? Now hear me in this as we bring this to close and pray. In our hearts is a part that has no interest in submitting to the will of God. But here's the sad part. In that rod, speaks of two things, beloved. 
It speaks of the authority of the Father, which then speaks of the willingness of the Son. Does that make sense? The authority of the Father granted to the Son. The Son has authority, but the reason the Son has authority is because the Father gave it to him. It's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus dealt with with a centurion. Do you remember that? The centurion says, and what a cool centurion, by the way. Centurions, by the way, picked by their nobility, not by their ability to fight. The last thing you need is a crazy guy that's really good at killing people in charge of other people. What you need is a guy you can trust. And the Romans knew that. Centurions got there by their nobility, not by their prowess. Well, this centurion has a servant that's ill, and that's enough for him to go and seek the help of Jesus. Isn't that cool if you think about it? I wonder how many servants he had. I mean, he had, a, he had a hundred guys that were under his beckoning call that were soldiers. And then he had servants beyond that. This guy's got a lot of people, but one servant's ill, and that's enough for him to go find Jesus. <clears throat> As he goes to find Jesus, Jesus goes, I'll go to his house. And the man says, no, 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 please. I am not worthy that you come to my house. Sorry. Didn't know if that was like the call for the rapture or something. I was just going to... It's getting ready. It's getting ready. I was going to jump and get a head start on you guys. He says, I'm not worthy for you to be in my house. Just say the word. That's all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. He goes, because you know what I know? See, I'm a man under authority. And because I'm a man under authority, I have authority. I've submitted myself to the authority of Rome. And because I've submitted myself to the authority of that kingdom, I have been granted from the king the power that came from that kingdom, the authority of that kingdom. And I say, and I tell this servant, come and go. And he does exactly what I tell him. See, I know that authority. I know that authority because I've submitted to the king. And in submitting to the king and his kingdom, I've been granted the authority of that kingdom that comes with my responsibility. And he goes, because of that, I know that that's what you have. You submitted to your king, your father, and in that kingdom. And because of that, he's granted you all the authority you need. And you don't, you have so much authority because your kingdom is so much greater than mine that all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be, be healed. And Jesus marvels. Do you know only twice in Scripture Jesus marvels? You want to amaze God? Be his people and don't have faith? Or don't be his person and have faith? Well, at least that's the way it looks. The Jewish people don't, and he's like, that's, well, you're freaking me out. And then there's like this guy, and he has faith, and he's like, whoa, that's amazing. I mean, Jesus is amazed because this guy's like, whoa, look at this guy. He really trusts me. He gets this whole under authority, authority thing. And that's what this is. You get it? And he goes, I want this there because if you could realize that the authority you have has been granted because you're willing to be under that authority, that's, all that, that's what I'm looking for. See, what that then is, is it creates humility in us that recognizes that there's a kingdom out there and a king, and we should be representing, not just mavericks for hire. Please hear me. My king told me that he's come to seek, to serve, and to save the least, the last, and the lost. That's the family business. And then my dad gave me a staff. He says, you know what the staff is for? It's not for whacking sheep. It's for making wolves afraid. And there's authority that comes with that. But that authority comes with responsibility. But you know that because you've submitted because you call me Lord. He goes, not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven because Jesus even said, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? You can't call me boss and not do what I say. How does that work? He goes, but if you're willing to truly make me your Lord, well, then I'm willing to grant you the authority of the kingdom for the purpose of the family business. Could there be a greater blessing in the world than seeing people saved, seeing people served, built up, and strengthened? 
raised up to do the Lord's work? I want to challenge you in Scripture. Find one place where all you have to do is confess Jesus as your Savior to be saved. You're not going to find it. There's the scary part, beloved. It doesn't say if you're willing to confess Jesus as your Savior or ask God into your heart, you'll be okay. What it tells us is that we have to confess Him as Lord. And that's an entirely different world. I think there's a lot of people up for a rude awakening right now because they think it's cool enough just to let Jesus be their servant instead of submit to the authority of the King. Well, here's my offer to you. If you've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today's the day when you can be born again. You can become a brand new creation. And that's the choice you make. Jesus, remember, he's a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks. He's asking you to let him in. You could kick down the door, but then there wouldn't be love without a choice. But if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, are you willing, when God holds this out, not just to put you under his kingdom, under his authority, but actually wants to hand you this staff and say, now I want to put you to service. I want to use you as a blessing. Will you take it? By the tail, will you take it? Are we saying, no, God, actually, I'm kind of cool just doing what I do. This is good. I'm just glad not to go to hell. Because look, at Savior's not enough. I want to be your Lord. That's what we pray now. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this precious time. I thank you for what you've done in this room. I thank you, Lord, that you so love us. You so want us, Lord, that you're not obsequiently sitting at a distance, aloof and uncaring, but rather you love us and you want us and you're driven. <laughs> Lord, you are so driven to love on us, to pull us closer, to have a real relationship with us. And Lord, we recognize that this world will never bow like it should to proper authority, but will bow to all kinds of other dumb things instead. So Lord, please forgive us for where we get caught up in that momentum. We don't want to do that. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. And every tongue will confess that you are Lord one day. Every tongue. If Satan has a tongue, he'll confess too. He seems to have quite a busy one. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the clarity to be able to respond now. To be able to declare you Lord now. But Lord, in that please, give us the humility to submit under your authority. To take the staff by the tail like we should. And allow you, Lord, to lead us that we could be the under-shepherds you call us to. And I do believe, Lord, as you make us all more like Jesus, every one of us will have a pastor's heart. That doesn't mean we'll all start churches and have badges and all that, but you'll give us the heart to shepherd people, to bring them closer to you, that the heart to see them protected from, from lies and from the enemy, to see them bear fruit, to, with a heart to see them all cross over to that place of great fruitfulness, the place of overflow. And so, Lord, I pray for every believer in here, myself included, please, Lord, do not let us be at that place where we waste time and just feel like it's good enough to not be negative. But, Lord, put us in that place of abject, abundant fruitfulness. And for that, we know we need to cling to you. Give us hearts that cling to you at every given moment. Cling to you. And, Lord, with that said, I pray as well, if there be any in this room, Lord, that are not sure that they've ever accepted the gift of Jesus, or, Father, they're sure they haven't. By the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them now, I pray. And if that's you in this room, you've got a choice to make. He's knocking at the door. Are you willing to let him in? 
Are you willing to let him forgive you, wash you clean, and be the Lord of your life? Make you brand new. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you simply to say, Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. That's my prayer now. I claim that prayer is my own. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. Here's the prayer. God, I'm a sinner like every other human being. I'm a sinner. And that sin must be punished. But I believe you so loved me that you sent Jesus to die on the cross on my behalf. And that as he died, my sin was fully punished. But that's not the end of the story. Just like your scripture promised, after being buried three days later, he rose again and offers me new life. And I say yes. At the cross, he proved to be my Savior. And I say yes to Jesus' payment as my Savior. But at the resurrection, he shows me a new life. And I say yes to Jesus as my Lord. So lead me. Fill me. Cleanse me. And Lord, I pray that as it's the case, that I could walk under your authority. And in doing so, you would use me to be a blessing. So here I am, I'm yours now, in Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And Lord, I just, I just, my heart is just compelled right now to pray. If there be any in this room right now who are numb, they're experiencing that spiritual leprosy, and they, there's a part of them that wants to want you. But there's this numbness. There's a bitterness or a self-serving or an unresolved thing between you and them. There's an issue where they have a problem with your authority, where they're fighting right now, Lord, something you have that you want them to do that they're just, they don't want to do. Lord, right now, show them the necessity of laying it before you and allowing you to allow them to feel again, to reverse this leprosy set them free. And Lord, I pray right now if there be anyone in this room, you know who you are. Just quietly in your own heart or in your own lips, just say, God, if that's me, Lord, heal me, change me. I don't want to walk out of here numb. I want to walk out of here vibrant obedient, alive. I know you're listening, Lord. I know you are hungry to hear. So have your way now. Heal your people. In Jesus' name.